I'm Bishop Sherman Young. Each week, the Word Break podcast answers questions about God, faith, and other spiritual issues. Here is this week's message. Ten cents. No wonder he was weeping. But understand that the church of the 21st century, like the church of the 1st century, ministers to a world that did not go to Sunday school. When they come to your church and you announce a text from 1 Thessalonians, they have no idea what you're talking about. You can say your scripture's in the book of John and they still have to go to the table of contents. That's right. Genesis or Revelation, they still have to look for it. Because the challenges upon us are very similar to the challenges of those in the time of the book of the Acts. That's right. To that end, I want to talk to you tonight about the church in our day. Would you say that after me, please? The church. And I would like to use as a scriptural foundation for that the most familiar verse in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. You know it by heart. Revelation 3 and 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. And then that last verse, verse 22 says, He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. The book of Revelation is a very interesting book. It is unique, as you know, as the last book in the Bible. It tells us of the end times. It talks of the apocalypse. The book of Revelation is the only prophetic book in the New Testament. It allows us to see the future and pray over the revelation. Revelation is very important, and there are many who avoid reading Revelation because they say it is either confusing or frightening. And therefore, they're very particular to not study it. They say they get chills from looking at the different figures that are there in Revelation. If your Bible says the revelation of St. John, it is in error. This is not the revelation of St. John. Rather, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. And when you read the book of Revelation, you have to understand that it is really put together like the old transparencies that we used to have on the overhead projector when we were at Druid High School. That every time the teacher would lay one transparency over the other, it would add color or it would add information or it would add graphics. And chapter by chapter, it is adding more revelation of Jesus Christ. It is about him. And therefore, in Revelation chapter 1, John says that he was banished to the Isle of Patmos, there to die, left alone only to discover while on that island he was not alone. There was another, another with a capital A. 
And John said, while walking along on the island, he heard a voice from behind him. And when he turned to see who it was, he saw Jesus standing there, but he looked different than he did the last time he saw him. John says, when I saw him, his hair was like lamb's wool. His feet was like polished brass. He wore a white gown from his neck down to his ankles. And about his waist was a golden girdle. And when he spoke, his voice was the sound of a thousand waterfalls. And John said, he said, I am he who was dead. But I am alive forevermore. And what I show you, I want you to write it down, put it in a book, and then send it, he said. Send these letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So Revelation is about Jesus. It teaches us about Jesus. It reveals Jesus to us. And people say, well, I don't readily understand it, but you have to know that when John wrote this Revelation, He wrote it in a way where those who were saved and received it could understand it, but the world could not understand it. And therefore, he used a certain system, a coding system of numbers, colors, and animals so that when the church got the book of Revelation, they could understand what John was saying based on the numbers, the animals, and the colors that he used. For example, in Revelation, you see him using the number, the number three, which is the number for the spirit world, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Trinity, and then the unholy trinity, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. In Revelation, you see the use of the number four, but four is the number for the earth, Because the earth was divided in three sections, north, south, east, and west. And so with the number four, whenever it occurs, it means something happens all over the earth. Well, in scripture, the number five is the number for ministry. And so Paul in Ephesians 4.11 talks about the grace gifts of what others call the fivefold. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And five is the number of grace and ministry. The number six in the Bible is the number for man. Because man was created on the sixth day. And then six is kind of an offset of the word sex. Because in order to have mankind, there must be sex. And so when you deal with the number six, you know that six is talking about man. When John talks about the Antichrist, the number of his name is 666. We know by it being six, it's a man. But three sixes means a man with spiritual power. The number seven in the Bible is the number for perfection, completeness, wholeness, and a finished work. Because the Hebrew word for seven means to be perfect, to be filled, to be complete and to have enough and seven then in the bible is the number for god it is right that seven is the number for god and six is the number for man because six is short of seven 
And no matter how smart you are, wise you are, wealthy you are, no matter how great or grand or talented you are, no matter how gifted you are, you're still short of God. No matter how many men get together and meet in boardrooms, no matter how many thousands upon thousands gather and make their mandates for what they will do, your arms are too short to box with God. When you get to seven, you've said all that can be said. That's why the number eight is the number for new beginnings. Because if seven is complete, when you get to eight, you've got to start all over again. I wish I had a witness. When you look at the number nine, the number nine is about judgment. The number ten has to do with earthly power. Where the number twelve has to do with God's divine power. So there are 12 tribes in Israel. I wish I had a witness. Jesus chooses 12 apostles and when one of them falls by the wayside, they must replace him with another because 12 is the number of the government of God. Now there are nine cases of leprosy imposed upon people in the Bible. Nine cases of blindness imposed upon them in the Bible because nine is the number of the judgment of God. In the first decade of this millennium, we were attacked on 9-1-1 or 9-11. People tried to figure out what that was about, but we were attacked in New York at the seat of the economy. And in Washington at the Pentagon, the seat of military might. The judgment came upon our government and upon our economy. And things haven't been the same since. Economy fell apart. I wish I had a witness in the last decade. Military has had its challenges around the world. Understand Revelation is a book of symbols. Then you notice in Revelation you also see animals there when you read Revelation. But remember they're symbolic and figurative. When you go through Revelation you see the ox which is the symbol of patient service. You see the lamb which is humility, and the lion, which is strength and ferociousness. It's interesting to me that in one place in Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. But in another place, he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, is that a paradox, Reverend Blackburn? Is he a lion or a lamb? I guess it depends on what you need him to be whenever you call him. Sometimes when you call him, he's as humble as a lamb. But other times in the midst of your warfare, he is as ferocious as a lion. So you understand that you've got these animals and then you've got colors. For example, in Revelation 6, when the white horse rides, there is no horse. It's the color white that's important. White is the symbol of peace. But there are four horses. So that means there's going to be peace for north, south, east, west, all over the earth. After the white horse comes the red horse. After that period of peace, there'll be war. Four horses all over the earth. After the red horse rides, there's the black horse, the symbol of starvation. There's going to be famine all over the earth. When the fourth horse rides, the pale horse is the color of death. There'll be death all over the earth. 
And so John uses these numbers in order that we can gain an understanding of what the will and the plan of God is for the last days. And the seven churches, the seven letters are important. John sits down and he writes seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Well, we know there were more than seven churches. But seven are picked specifically because they give some type of prophetic revelation disclosing the dimensions of God. So you got Ephesus, which actually did exist in Ephesus, early church. But then you've got Smyrna, which did exist in Smyrna, the persecuted church, which stands in church history for second and third century. You've got Pergamum, the church of idolatry, which stands in church history from 300 AD to 600 AD. You've got Thyatira, which represents the dark ages from 600 to 1500 AD. Then you've got Sardis, the reformed church, that represents the church from 1500 to 1700 thereabout. Then you've got Philadelphia that represents the church in the great revival period in the 1800s, the, the, the 1700s to the, to the 1900s. But then there is Laodicea, the seventh church, the lukewarm church, which represents the church in our day. And when you read the letter to Laodicea, it closes with Jesus knocking on the door. Now, out of all of the teachings that you may have heard from Revelation, the one teaching that I know has been messed up more than any is Revelation 3 and 20. Because I've heard people say that Jesus, according to Revelation 3.20, is knocking on the door of a sinner's heart. Across the street, the senior choir, when I was a boy, used to sing, somebody's knocking at your door. Oh, sinner, why don't you answer? Somebody's knocking at your door. But when you read the letter to the lukewarm church, Jesus is not knocking on the door of a sinner's heart. He's knocking on the door of his own church. Revelation 3 and 20 has nothing to do with Jesus reaching after unbelievers. Rather, it has to do with him reaching after unbelieving believers. That the church has locked him out. And we know that somebody's in there because he said, if any man will open the door. So we know the church is full. The preacher is in there. The choir is in there. The deacons are there. The stewards are there. The elders are there. The ministers are there. Oh yes, the deaconess, they must be there. The ushers are there. The busy bee club, they're in there. The willing workers, they're there. Everybody's there but Jesus. The danger of having church without Jesus. And nobody recognizes it. We go through all of our motions, emotions, and commotions. We go through all of our order of worship and never get in spirit and truth. We go 
our happy clappy period where we are welcoming visitors and where we are celebrating announcements and never really knew that Jesus was not there. Yeah, you can have church without the Lord, but church will be ineffective. I wish I had a witness. I mean, it ought to dawn on you when ain't nobody getting saved, but every now and then. Peter preached one sermon and 3,000 got saved. Now you preach 3,000 sermons and hardly get one. I wish I had a witness. It ought to dawn on you that the sick are still sick. Nobody ever gets healed. Nobody ever gets delivered. Nobody ever gets set free. I came to Jesus as I was and went back out just like I came. Every time we meet in the house of God, something mighty ought to happen. I wish I had some help here. Some miracle ought to take place. Some bondage ought to be broken. And the church that represents the church in our day is described by John as lukewarm. Unpredictable. Come on now. We go to church, we don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes we have a good Sunday. Everybody wants to shout. Next Sunday, everybody's sleeping. Same Bible. I wish I had a witness. Same address. But it's unpredictable. We don't always bring our worship in spirit and truth. Our giving is unpredictable. Somebody gives a big amount of money and we think that's wonderful. Not understanding that wherever God is working, generosity ought to be a part of our ministry. You know, God told Israel, don't bring him no sick offerings. He said, anything you bring me, it needs to be healthy. It needs to be good. It needs to be right. Don't bring me birds with broken wings. Don't bring me lambs with broken legs and tatters and spots and bruises God said I don't want your sick offering and he still says that today he doesn't want your sick offering you say what's a sick offering a sick offering is when your manicure and your pedicure cost more than what you put in church a sick offering is when you carry in a $400 pocketbook and you give a $5 offering I wish I had a witness here a sick offering is when your weave, whether you had it glued or sold, costs more than what you gave for church anniversary. A sick offering is when you can sit in the beauty shop for three and a half hours to get your hair done to come to church, and you can't sit in church for an hour and a half without checking the time. And the church of today errors in at least three ways. We seek, number one, to memorialize God. We want to build monuments to him. Like Israel, they would leave these groves and stack up stones where God once moved. And we keep going back to those old places. I wish I had help. Those old songs, those old, that old, because we think that's where God is. 
We keep trying to memorialize. Let's all go back to the old landmark. Stay in the service of the Lord. Because we think he must be memorialized. But then secondly, the church of today, we do too many things that God never told us to do. And we do them so well. And consequently, his agenda gets pushed back and our agenda gets pulled forward. So we have to have our events, you know, where we can meet, greet, and eat. I went to one church, well, no, more than one actually, but, you know, people plant churches and Bishop Evans, and maybe I go there for their men's conference or evangelism conference or something they're having. And I notice on the program it says, First Annual Men's Day. Now, it can't be first and annual at the same time. I mean, if it's the first one, it's not annual. I wish I had a witness here. But we're in such a rut of doing the same thing every year on the same day. And we will repeat it even if it hasn't worked in the last eight years. We will just scold everybody and say, now we got to make this work. Because every first Sunday in March, we have a sacrifice, the cow day. And then thirdly, we do what God did tell us to do too long. Oh yeah, he blessed that revival week once upon a time. Oh yeah, he blessed that women's program once upon a time. Oh yeah, when Big Mama, my dear, was living, oh yeah. Oh yeah, he blessed, he blessed that celebration back then. But just because he blessed it once doesn't mean he wants to bless it every year or at the same time every year. The truth is the pastor has to follow the Holy Ghost and the church is supposed to follow the pastor's lead. If the pastor said we need revival, nobody should come up to him and say, well, it's not on the calendar. We have revival here in August. It's just April. The truth is, we have revival when the Holy Spirit says we need one. You can't calendar a move of God. I wish I had a little help. You can't calendar what God wants to do in this house. You can't calendar when the Lord wants to save and heal and deliver and set free. The only thing you can do is bow on your knees and wait in the presence of God until revival comes. Today's church is in a new world. The postmodern era. Can you say postmodern? When my father, Reverend L.A. Hudson, was, was preaching, many times I would hear him say, we are this modern church. Now, he was born in 1895. Being born in 1895, he had seen things in the church world that most of us had never seen. And he was concerned that the church had changed. And so he's called it this modern church, this, this modern church. Well, 
We're not the modern church anymore. Now we're postmodern. You see, being born in 1895 and coming from that background where he knew people who were former slaves as he was growing up, he understood that the church of that day had a different passion. They, they had different music. They had different ways of praying. They had different ways of having devotion. They didn't believe in having a choir in the revival every night. My mother would complain when we go to any church where they had a choir on any night in the revival but Friday night. But nobody remembers that in here tonight but me. I remember when you had a five-night revival, you only took up an offering twice a week. One on Wednesday night, and that was the silver offering. If you did put a dollar in it, they were going to give you change back. Friday night, they called the roll. Ward number one. Ward number one, five dollars. Ward number two, seven dollars. Ward number three, twenty dollars. Everybody would hop, whoa, twenty dollars. You're trying to show out. But of course, nobody remembers that other than me. Somebody said that was then. Somebody said that was then. See, the truth is, there are a lot of things that were then that aren't now. Back then, remember, Sunday was the Lord's day all day. You come to Sunday school at 9.30, you were there until 9.30 that night. Oh, I don't have any help here. We Sunday school from 9.30 to around 11 o'clock. Then around 11 o'clock, we change it over and moan and groan for 30 minutes. Magnify our struggle. Talk about our pain. Long, slow songs with long, slow prayer. And the deacon that prayed the second prayer, he got a chance to show out a little bit. I was pastoring the church once. I told one deacon to pray the second, the first prayer. He didn't want to pray that one because the crowd hadn't got in yet. He told me, he said, no, I prayed the first prayer last meeting Sunday. I want to pray the second prayer. Because when he prayed the second prayer, I don't have a witness here. You remember now, Lord, once more again for your handmaid servant, bow down before thee and the mother does. Thank you for last night lying down early morning. Rise. Thank you to bed we laid on one our cooling board, our kibble with our wine and shield. Four walls of our room and the four walls of our grave. Didn't bow for no form or fashion outside, show this unfriendly word. But we're bowed in humble submission according to your holy word. We want you to put your loving arms around us. Build us up where we're torn down. Prop us up on every lean inside. Cast our sin in the sea of forgetfulness where they won't condemn us in this world nor confront us in the world to come. Now, Lord. And somebody will say, that's the time. That's the time. When I lay down to die, stick my sword in the sandy banks of time, study war no more. My fingernails turn purple, tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Give my soul a resting place in Jesus' name and kingdom. Amen. Thank God. Somebody said that was them. You know, when I was growing up, 
up in church, I never knew how we were going to heaven. Like everybody else, I wanted to go. I'd just been baptized when I was a boy down in Reform, and I wanted to go to heaven, but I couldn't ever figure out how we are going to go because every time I went to church, they changed the mode of transportation. I was at church one Sunday, they said, some glad morning, when this life is over, I fly away. Well, you know, I'd never flown on a plane before. I said, that's cool. We're going to get some airplane tickets. I got back the next Sunday. They changed the mode of transportation and said, tis the old ship was on. Get on board. Get on board. I said, all right, we're not going to fly. We're going to cruise. Never been on a cruise ship. I got back the next Sunday. They changed it again. They said, back, back, train, and get your load. So I'm trying to figure out, are we going to fly, are we going to cruise, are we going on the train? Then I got back the next Sunday and they scratched all of that and said, when the gates swing open, I'll walk in. They said, it's a highway to heaven. None can walk up there. Because every song was about dying. Somebody said that was then. First church I pastored over in Mississippi at Dr. Swift's hometown, around in his home community. Man, we voted on everything. You know, I mean, we voted. We learned how to vote. We knew parliamentary procedure. We didn't know prayer, but we knew parliamentary procedure. And we voted on everything. Man, Sunday school, secretary read the minutes, brother superintendent, February 19th. February 19th is a Sunday school with 35 minutes of study, class report as follows. Then after you get through, say, what do I hear? And we had a motion. What's your pledge? I moved to the second motion. I always get a second, no matter what the motion was. I mean, we had a man, he was trained to second motions. Second motion. He didn't even know what the motion was. Dr. Swift, we had an invitation for our choir to go over to Redbud Baptist Church and sing two selections. Well, we had to stop the worship and vote on whether we were going to let the choir go. So I had to put the motion in for offer a motion that they go to Redbud on the second Sunday in May. Somebody got up and said, not ready. Well, you know, I'm, I'm like 19, 20 years old. I don't really know. I said, state your not readiness. He said, well, I ain't kicking it, but you know, we, every time look around, but Red Butt want us to come, we invite them, they don't never come over here. We have to vote on that. Kind of like the man, you know, they were having this business meeting and, the, and they were voting on where to get a chandelier for the church, you know. And they were going through all the motions about it and they were getting up, sitting down, getting up, sitting down, finding this old timer. He got up, he said, I want to say this now. Y'all know when these young folk grow up, graduate from the high school, they leave here. They don't come back. They get a good job somewhere or another, and they leave here, and they don't ever come back. And y'all keep on talking about this here chandelier. Now, I ain't got nothing against it. I just want to know, if you get the chandelier, who going to play it? (laughs) 
I mean, we wrote it on everything. You know, somebody couldn't even get saved. The Lord couldn't save anybody unless we voted on it. Somebody come down to be saved, respond to the message, want to accept Jesus as the Savior. What's your pleasure? Brother, brother, brother moderator didn't even call him pastor, but a moderator off a motion. We see this person, the candidate of baptism, giving right hand of salvation, and the right hand fellowship. They come in part of this church and go right. We ain't gonna teach them nothing. They ain't gonna tell them. They can go right here and raise hell in this church just like everybody else. Second emotion. Somebody said that was them. Voting is out. Prayer is in. Let me try that again. Voting is out. I said prayer is in. You see, because in our immaturity, we didn't know any better and we brought everything from the world into the house of God without ever consulting the Bible. No, now they said Jesus was our husband. You know, church married to Jesus or get married to him. If he was, we was cheating on Jesus with Robert. Robert's rules of order. Because Robert had more to say about how we ran the house of God than God did. I don't have a witness here. I'm in trouble. I might as well go ahead with this. We moved into a postmodern era. That was then. This is now. We moved from a print culture to a digital culture. From analog TV to high definition. We moved from tapes and CDs to downloads. We've moved from home phones to smartphones. we moved from keyboards to touchpads. We've moved from neighborhood churches to regional churches. People used to go to the church closest to their house. They don't do that anymore. Churches don't grow by geography. They grow by affinity. People go to the church where they can identify with the ministry of that church. They'll pass by 25 churches on the way to a church where they feel that they are being blessed and built up and where they can serve in the ministry without controversy. They're not moving to the church just down the street, especially if they went down there and could detect some strife in the, in the, in the pulpit between the pulpit and the pew. Are you hearing what I'm saying? They would rather go to a church and sit up in the third balcony and enjoy the worship than to come sit on the front row of your church where you're not getting along. We've got to bring the old faith to the new future. And we've got to consider modernity is over. This is not the modern era. In the modern era, Woodrow Wilson was the first modern president. In the modern area, there was big teaching on right and wrong, right and wrong. And right was often determined by people rather than the truth of God. It's not right for women to wear pants. It's not right for women to get their hair cut. It's not right for women to wear red. It's not right. Well, what Bible is that in? The modern era was the suit and tie generation. Everybody came to church wearing a suit and tie. Sometimes I see things now, advertising programs for churches, and then they say, dress code, church attire. What is church attire? What is church attire? I mean, I mean it, it, it's not enough for you that, that I'm clean and covered? 
Oh, I don't have a witness here. They said, well, we want them to dress right at church. Well, what is right? Because the Bible I read said man looks on the outer appearance. God looks at the heart. Lady said one time, well, see, we don't want these young women wearing these short skirts coming up in here dressed like a hoochie mama tempting our men. Baby, if your man get tempted, it ain't the hoochie mama's fault. He got tempted because temptation is in him. The root of temptation is, I wish I had a witness. I've seen people get tempted looking at somebody wearing a choir robe. Man, if temptation in you, it don't matter whether they got on a robe or a miniskirt. In the modern era, we had Sunday clothes. Remember that? We had play clothes and then we had school clothes. You couldn't go to school in your play clothes. You couldn't go to, go to school in your church clothes. You couldn't play in your church clothes because that's where we had Sunday shoes. It was the Oz and Harriet generation. People worked on one job for 35 years and retired. People joined the church and wouldn't leave no matter what. When I was a member of New Zion, we had a man that was president of the choir for 36 years. That's in the modern era. You won't get nobody now to hold a job in church 36 years. I don't have a witness here. Because times have changed. And a part of times changing is people wanting to do the same thing again and again and again and again. In the modern era, people paid their 30-year mortgage and people kept up with their neighbors. Most people now don't even know who their neighbors are. And nobody worked on Sunday. Not on a job and not even at home. My mother wouldn't sew a button on Sunday. She wouldn't iron a shirt on Sunday. She didn't even cook on Sunday. She cooked on Saturday and warmed it up on Sunday. But the modern era is over. And the churches of the modern era all looked alike. You knew you were in a Baptist church based on the order of worship because they all looked alike. They all were going to sing, what a fellowship. Yield not to temptation. Pass me not. Amazing grace. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and shine on me? I wonder if the lighthouse will shine on me. You knew you are in a Methodist church based on the readings and the litmus. The modern era practiced the controllable holy. And we, we, we graded a church based on how much it looked like the other churches in its denomination. But the modern era has passed away. Modern era is gone. And churches have to move with God. Well, when you get here, Jesus said, Behold, I stand, and I'm through now. At the door and knock. That they had gotten so caught up in the way they were doing things that even Jesus was not in there. I'm told that when that was being painted, 
by Michelangelo, I'm told that he didn't put a doorknob on the outside, but rather on the inside. Understand, if the Lord comes in, he has to be invited in. It's interesting, he didn't say if any preacher would open the door. Any man. Which allows me to understand that he is wanting so to come in if he can find a hunger for his presence. He'll respond. And he said, I will come in and sup with him and he will sup with me. You know, there's a difference in visitation and habitation. Visitation means you come by. Habitation means you stay. You know, even in the old church, they knew he didn't stay long. That's why they would moan, come by here, Lord, if you don't stay long. That's visitation. Pass me not. In other words, Lord, we know you're out there somewhere. Stop in for a little while. I don't want a church where the Lord may show up or may not show up. I don't want a place of visitation. I want a place of habitation. I want to be where the Lord dwells. I want to be in a place where the Lord lives. I want to be in a place where the Lord resides. I want to be in a place where the Lord stays. Because I recognize uh, in the presence of the Lord, there is joy. There is peace. There is love. uh, And there is grace. And he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man would open the door and let me in, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. Well, when I first come in, you'll be the host and I'll be the guest. I'll sup with you. When I first come in, you will host me. You will welcome me. You'll spread the table for me. But if you let me stay just a little while, I'm going to turn it around and host you in your own church. I'm going to host you in your own life. You know, when I first got saved, I gave him room in my life. But now, I turn my life over to him. And he is hosting me. He feeds me. He blesses me. He heals me. He delivers me. In my own life and in the house of God, I don't want to host Jesus. I want Jesus to be the center of attention and host us.
Oh! <laughs>